verses 1 to 15. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Uh, good evening. Hopefully this will work. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, my name is Joel. For those of you who do not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. Um, as Tim's already mentioned, with this term we're doing a series called The Roots of Redemption. Uh, and after the talk, we'll have some question time. So if you have any questions throughout this sermon, uh, please feel free to text it to uh, the number that is on the screen. Um, and I'll be trying to answer a few of them at the end. Um, Tim's already mentioned we're doing this series called Roots of Redemption. Last week we looked at mission. This week we're looking at the topic of work. But before we get to work, excuse the pun, uh, why don't I pray? So if you're the praying type, please bow your heads with me. Father God, we just want to thank you for your mercy. We are thankful so much for your word. And I just pray right now as we come to it that you may teach us through it. Lord, that you may teach us about your son Jesus. That you may help us to be more like him. And Lord, that you may help us to bring glory to you and to serve others through our work. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to look at the topic of work tonight. But before we talk about work, I want to define work for you. You can define it in many different ways, but this is my definition that I want us to work with tonight. I think work is any time that you are not resting. Any time you are not resting. Now, resting could be sleeping, recovering, or relaxing. Now, I know that there's a bit of there's some flaws in that definition because for one, one of us might find something relaxing, the other one might find taxing, such as gardening. I don't know about you, but I do not find that relaxing. But I do think this definition is helpful. I think it's helpful because it makes us think that work is not just our J-O-B. And I think it's helpful because it means that um, those who are unemployed are also still workers, that what they do is still work, such as mothers or maybe the retired or, or maybe those who are unemployed and trying to work at trying to find a job. 
That's the definition of work I want to use tonight. I think with that definition in mind, I think a lot of us have a love-hate relationship when it comes to work. Before I, was a civ- before I was a pastor, I was a civil engineer, and there were days when I would love my job. I loved building things and, and be able to say to people, yeah, I built that or I worked on that. I loved the relationships that I was able to build with people, with other engineers or people from the community or tradies. I loved being part of a team and feeling valued. I loved it when people said to me, you're doing a good job. I don't know about you, but there's days when I absolutely loved my work, and especially those days when I got paid. That were good days. But then at the same time, there's also days when I hated my work. And I'm guessing you're the same. You know, I, I hated the nature of work, how it never ends. So as an engineer, I hated that there's always more roads to repair, more bridges to fix. I hated those sleepless nights where you just couldn't stop thinking about a certain issue or problem or conversation you have to have. I hated how people would annoy me at work, you know, just, 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 just didn't appreciate me or just upset me, didn't care for me. I hated when I had nothing to do and I hated when I had too much to do. I don't know about you, but personally, I can have a love-hate relationship when it comes to work. And I think in particular in those days where work is more of a burden, I think a lot of us can ask the question of like, why do I even bother? Like, why do I get out of bed? Why don't I just binge on Netflix, go to the beach, or just read a book all day? Like, like what is the point of work? Or maybe we haven't phrased it this way, but what is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of work? Well, tonight we're going to look at that question, what is the purpose of work? And we're going to look at the answer from the scriptures. Because I think that the Bible teaches us many things about work. Maybe people have already got some answers for this in terms of what is the purpose for work. Maybe tonight you're thinking, well, Joel, it's, it's money. Maybe you think it's to make friends or maybe to, to make memories or, or, or maybe it's actually to give purpose itself. Either way, we're going to look at what the Bible says tonight and what we're going to discover in regards to this topic of work as we look at the Bible's storyline and how work fits into it is we're going to come across and try and answer that question of what is the purpose of work. And to do so, we're going to have uh, three points tonight that I want us to try and dig into and learn. And the three points would be this. The first one would be God's design for work. The second one would be sin's distortion of work. And the third one would be Jesus' deliverance of work. Uh, for your information, by the way, I forgot to mention the bulletin has actually got the wrong point. So I repeat that for you in terms of the three points. God's design for work, sin's distortion of work, and Jesus' deliverance of work. So, why don't we get into it and let's look at Genesis 1 and 2 and look at God's design for work. Now, so to give you a heads up in terms of what I think we get told about God's design for work from creation, I think there's three purposes in regards to work. The first one is to bring glory to God. The second one is to serve others. And the third one is to provide for us. Glory to God, serve others and provide for us. Where do I get this? Well, let's look at the first one, bring glory to God. And let's look at Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Uh, it should come up on the screen. I don't have necessarily time to read it all out, but what I want you to see is in your, own, in your own Bible on the screen is what is emphasized here. What we see here is work is repeated, rested is repeated. Like you cannot read Genesis 2, 1 to 3 and not see that God is a worker. You cannot read this and not see Genesis 1 and think God is a designer, that he's a craftsman, that he's a physician. You see, what we see in Genesis 1 to 2 is that he is a worker. And what we see in Genesis 1 repeatedly is that he delights in his work. 
as he says over and over again, it is good, it is good. Later on in the Bible, in Psalm 19, verse 1, a famous verse, it says this. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. What I want you to try and see here is that God's work brings glory to Him. That the work of God brings glory to Him. The skies, creation. Now, why is this important? Maybe thinking that. Well, it's important because in comparison to the other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, those by the Babylonians or the Egyptians, work was not something that was valued. Instead, work was something that was demeaning. It was to be godlike was to rest. But what we see straight away in Genesis 1 is that work has dignity. You see, what we see in Genesis 1 is that God is glorified by his own work, but he's also glorified through humans' work. What do I get that? Well, we see it hinted to us in Genesis 1, verse 27, and then unpacked for us more in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, 27, really important verse, we're told that humans are created in the image of God to bring glory to God. And the way we do that, one of the ways, is by working. In Genesis 2, we then hear more details about how does our work bring glory to God. As we see that Adam's work is an act of worship. Like, where do I get that from? Well, it's a bit tricky, but I want to try and point this out to you. Basically, what we see in Genesis 2, when we compare it to the rest of Scripture, is we see similarities between the description of Eden and the description of the temple later on in the Bible where people worshipped God. We see also similarities in the language that is used to describe Adam's work with the temple priest's work. So I don't have time to go through it in detail, but let me give you just four quick similarities in terms of the temple and Garden of Eden uh, similarities. Firstly, God is present, and that's emphasized in the Garden of Eden as well as the temple. Secondly, the entrance to Eden as well as the temple is from the east. Thirdly, both Eden as well as the temple are described to have gold and onyx. I have no idea what onyx is, but it's there. And then fourthly, that there's rivers, that there's rivers flowing in the Garden of Eden as well as near the temple. In regards to the language used in terms of Adam's work with the priest's work, in Genesis 2.15, if you've got your Bibles there, it says this, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Basically, to work it and take care of it. They're just two simple words in the Hebrew, and they're never found again in the Scriptures together, until it talks about the work of the temple priests. And so you see there's some parallel going on here. If you're a bit like, Joel, this is confusing. What are you trying to tell me? That's okay. Just understand this. In the scriptures, the Garden of Eden has got similar language to the temple, where God's people would worship. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it means God has always designed work to be an act of worship. That God has designed work so that it brings glory to him like the stars in the sky bring glory to him as a lot of you know i like soccer um i'm very bad at playing it but i love watching it i'm very good at doing that um and when it comes to soccer though when i used to play it one thing used to just really annoy me about the sport i always played as a defender and what used to annoy me was how much glory you know the goal scorers would get and how little glory the goal savers would get you know, be it the goalie or, or be it the defenders. And it used to really annoy me. Like, it made me feel like all the dirty work that I did as a defender, like all those slide tackles, all those blocks, those numerous goals I saved, just means nothing compared to one dude's simple head or simple kick and the glory he receives. So annoying. 
It made my work feel useless. It made my work feel inferior to those superstars. You know what's interesting is in the Bible, what we see is that there is glory in Adam's work as well as the work of the stars. We see that there is glory in dirty work, if you want to put it that way. And I think it's really important that we understand this. So first purpose, to bring glory to God. That's what I think we get from work. Second purpose, to serve others. I think when we think of uh, the Garden of Eden, I think maybe a lot of us just think it was a paradise where there's no need for work. Basically, Adam and Eve were sunbaking naked while drinking boost juice. Like, I think we can just think that it's, just a, it's a paradise, that there was no need for any work to be done. And yet what you see in Genesis 2, verses 4 to 7, is we see that there, there's incompleteness. In verse 5, we get told that there was no one to work the ground. And you see, the problem in these verses we're told is not the lack of water, but the lack of workers. And so what we see here in this account is that in verse 15, we're told that God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Now, why would God need a worker if paradise was perfect and had no need to be looked after or no need to be worked? Why did Adam need to take care of creation? Um, this week, my wife, Emma, is uh, going to New Zealand to visit her auntie who's getting married um, and also to see her family. Uh, and unfortunately, myself and my two boys, Elijah and Isaac, can't go with her. And so I'm going to be a bachelor looking after the boys this week um, with pastor in pajamas. But um, what's going to happen this week as I drop Emma off is she's going to turn to me and she's going to seriously say to me, Joel, take care of the boys take care of the boys. Now, why would she say that? Well, because if I didn't, there would be chaos. My boys would draw on the walls, they would eat all the food in the house, they would poo out all the food that they eat from the house, and then they would wipe that poo all over the walls on the house. There would be utter chaos. The reason why Emma would say to me, take care of the boys, is because they need to be looked after. And it's the same here in this creation account. You see, God creates creation to be worked. And he creates Adam and Eve to be workers to look after creation. You see, what we see here from the beginning is that work has an outward focus to it. That Adam is to care for creation. But we also see this outward focus, not just in Adam, but also in Eve. In Genesis 2.18, it says this, In regards to Eve, the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. I unpacked that in detail a few weeks ago, but what I want you to see here is that Eve is a co-worker with Adam, that Eve is to help Adam as he helps creation. He is to serve Adam as he serves creation. What we see here is that work, both for man and for woman, has got an outward focus to it. It's about serving others, be it creation or one another or the children they're going to have. So second purpose of work, to serve others, we see in God's creation account. Third one, to provide for us in Genesis 2, 7 to 9, what we get told is that there's a lot of trees. A lot of trees that Adam and Eve can eat. There's uh, two special trees, which we'll learn about next week. And then what we get told about is basically Adam in verse 15, I think it is, or 16, that Adam can eat from any of these trees but the one forbidden tree. Now, the main focus of these verses is that Adam and Eve are obedient towards God. 100%. That's the main focus. But what we can't miss is the secondary teaching here, and that is that it is work for Adam and Eve to take fruit from the trees. 
you know, we can't miss the fact that from the very beginning, God has created work to provide us with fruit, to provide us with rewards, and that we should see that as a gift. So the next time that you do get pay on payday, not to be guilty about that, to be thankful for how God has provided for you through work. So they're the three purposes that we see, glory to God, serving one another, and also to, for provision. Before we look at sin's distortion, though, there's one implication about God's design that's really important for us today. And the implication is this. Your work has dignity. Your work has dignity. When I was 16 years old, um, I worked at McDonald's, and I uh, cleaned toilets, um, uh, yeah, picked up rubbish. I had one of those really embarrassing like brim hats that had like a McDonald's on it. And I had this tight, greasy uniform that I literally had fake pockets because they didn't want me to steal from the till. Um, it was demeaning and I just didn't feel like the work I did had any dignity. A few years after that, I became a cadet as an engineer. And what that means is that I was the guy who went and took the coffee runs and I filled in a lot of paperwork and filed a lot of paperwork for hours on end. I think all of us have had some work which just feels demeaning, feel like it has no value. And yet what we see here in God's accounts of Genesis is that there is dignity in God being a gardener as he works with the dust to create Adam and Eve. What we see here is that there is dignity to work with your hands as well as your head, which is not what the Greek philosophers such as Aristotle um, taught back in the days of Greek philosophy, which would say that only work with your head is more important than work with your hands. And so next time you're doing data entry, maybe you're packing clothes or maybe you're changing a dirty nappy, maybe you're filling in forms or putting out the rubbish, remember that there is dignity in your work, that there is value in your work, that there is purpose in your work. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn about God's design. And I think when we read this, I think it's hard not to think, man, this God is a good God. And I think it's hard not to think, there's no way Adam and Eve are going to eat from that forbidden tree. You know, like, like, there's countless other trees for them to eat from. It's like, no way, that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. And then we turn to Genesis 3. And the unthinkable happens. And Adam and Eve, as we all know, rebel against God through their work rather than bringing glory to God with it. What we learn about in Genesis 3 is how sin distorts God's purposes for work. And how sin distorts God's purposes for work in many ways, but there's three things that I want to just quickly point out to you. And that's firstly, it distorts work into an idol. Secondly, it distorts work into being about self-service. And thirdly, it distorts work into fruitful, fruitlessness rather than fruitfulness. So talk about the first one. Firstly, sin distorts work into an idol. Maybe running Joel, what's an idol? Good question. Um, I'm going to be really brief and basic on this one. It's anything that you worship that is not God. Anything that you worship that is not God. By eating from the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve worshipped knowledge rather than God. And the unfortunate truth is, is ever since then, all of humanity worships idols, be it with their work or with the money that they earn from their work. We see this in Genesis 11, when unfortunately, um, people from my occupation, some civil engineers, build a tower called the Tower of Babel. And they do so for the idol of fame and making a name for themselves. But the unfortunate reality is you and I do this as well. Uh, a pastor called Tim Keller is an American, really gifted man. He uh, defines idols, I guess, with 
uh, more detail than what I did before. And, and he defines an idol like this. He says, an idol is anything that you love, serve, and derive meaning from more so than God. And he says, an idol is anything other than God in which we find control, security, significance, satisfaction, or beauty. So can I just be direct for a lot of us in this room who love Jesus? What idol are you worshipping, be it with your work or the money that you receive from your work? What idol has grabbed your heart and your affection away from Jesus? Is it fame? Is it knowledge? Is it wealth? Or maybe it's work itself. Maybe work has become what you love the most. Maybe work has become what you serve the most with your time, energy, and emotions. Maybe work is where you find your ultimate meaning. Maybe work is where you find control, significance, security, satisfaction, and beauty. Confession for you. When I was at McDonald's, I didn't idolize work, let me tell you. Um, there's nothing to idolize. But um, when I became a civil engineer and started to become more successful and get more responsibility and people saying, you're doing a good job, you're, you're good at what you do, 100%, I made an idol out of work. As I try to find that meaning and security and significance in what I do. What about you? I know for me, I went to Bible college after that, and for the first year, I just had to repent of that idolatry, and I found it really hard that as I'm studying Greek and really struggling, the person next to me who's a cleaner was doing better than me, and I was an engineer. I found my identity in work rather than in Christ, because I worshipped it, if I'm honest. And if I'm really honest, at times, even as a pastor, for the few months that I've been here, there's been times when I've replaced Jesus with ministry, in regards to my affections and love. How about you? How about you? Because the reality is, you might not be doing it now, but there will be a time where sin will distort your heart to make work or the things that you earn from work into an idol. So firstly, sin distorts work into an idol, but secondly, into self-service. In Genesis 1, like I said, work was outward focus. It was about serving creation or one another. But then all of a sudden, sin enters the story. And, and I want you to look at verses 10 to 12 in me. What happens here is God shows up and he comes to Adam. And Adam replies to this. He says, hopefully it should be on the screen. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, that's God. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. <laughs> I wonder if you notice the eyes of Adam. I wonder if you notice how he says, I heard you, I was afraid, I was naked, so I hid. It's emphatic as you read this. It's repeated to you so you can see a simple point, and that is that sin makes us selfish. But it's also repeated to us when you see that his own wife, Adam, throws under the bus when he gets asked what happened and he blames his wife, Eve, who he was singing to only moments before. Sin makes us selfish since the fall, humanity has been inward focused rather than outward focused with our work. Sin has distorted work to be about serving ourselves rather than serving others. 
instead of imitating God and working in community for community, we imitate Adam and we work to fracture our communities. Um, a British author called uh, Dorothy Sayers recognized this reality, and when talking about work, um, she said this. This should come up on the screen. This is when talking about sin's effect on the fall, sin's effects oh, sorry, on work. She said, Doctors practice medicine not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The cure of the patient is something that happens on the way. Lawyers accept briefs not because they have a passion for justice but because the law is a profession which enables them to live. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Joel, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a physio, or, you know, like, I'm a teacher, I'm serving people through my work. And, and yes, you are, I don't want to deny that. But what I'm trying to say to you, that is, if you really go to the root of your heart, your main motivation is not about serving others, but it's about serving yourself. And that's because of sin and because of the fall. And it's important that we recognize that. Secondly, sin distorts work into self-service. Thirdly, though, sin distorts work into frustratingly fruitlessness, or frustrating fruitlessness. In Genesis 3, what ended up happening is that God curses the snake, Adam and Eve, and as a result of that cursing, there's now suffering, death, and there's painful labor. Painful labor in childbirth as well as in work itself. And what basically happens is that work now is frustrating. It's a burden rather than a blessing. And it's for this reason that some days you go to work and work just punches you in the face. For this reason, sometimes you just go to work and you just, like, you just get beaten up. And I know this is the case for a lot of you. I know some of you here are working long hours and you're getting home and you're just like, what is the point? Why is, why is work such a burden rather than a blessing? And it's, well, it's because of the distortion of sin that we see here. Now, I think we all know this, but I think it's important that we remember this. Like, why, Joel? Why do we need to remember this and, and always remember this? Well, because if you forget this reality, you'll have a romantic view of work, which applies for a lot of you here as you're studying at university, studying for your careers. If you forget this, then you'll go into work having unrealistic expectations, a romantic view, and then it'll be crushed as you start to work. Or for those of us who are working and thinking about changing our careers, changing our jobs, once again, if you forget this reality, you have a romantic view and you'll think that the grass is greener on the other side always. And then when you get there, you'll see that it is just as burdensome. Since the fall, until Jesus returns, part of work will always be a burden. You need to remember that. So in Genesis 3, we learn about sin's distortion of work. But before we look at Jesus' deliverance of work, this has one implication. It's a simple one, a short one. If the first one is that your work has dignity, the second implication is this. Your work can be divisive. Your work can be divisive. It can divide you with your relationship with God. It can divide you with your relationship with other people. And it can also divide you mentally itself. And we see that in depression that people can get when they're at work or maybe when they're unemployed. As we read Genesis 3, I think what we, our reaction is, man, sin sucks. And I think as we read this, we think if only Adam and Eve didn't eat from that tree. If only Adam and Eve didn't eat from that tree. But then you turn the page, or a few pages, and you get to the New Testament. You get introduced to the second Adam 
The second Adam who was miraculously created just like the first. The second Adam who was tempted just like the first. The second Adam who did the unthinkable just like the first. But not by eating from a forbidden tree, but by dying on a bloody one. Friends, if I wonder if you've ever seen the, the contrast that there is in the scriptures between the first Adam and the second Adam of Jesus, the perfect worker. I wonder if you've ever thought that in the garden, Adam turned from God substituted himself for God and sinned at a tree. Yet at the cross, Jesus turned to God, substituted himself for sinners and bore sin on a tree. I wonder if you ever realized that in the garden, Adam's work brought condemnation, cursing and defeat. And Jesus' work on the cross brought salvation, blessing and victory. I wonder if you thought how in the garden, Adam shifted the blame of his sin onto others. And at the cross, Jesus took the blame of sin of others on himself. I wonder if you ever realized in the garden, Adam, sin and work made us enslaved to sin. But at the cross, Jesus freed us and redeemed us from that sin. The better Adam. We can never forget how God redeems. We can never forget that God sent Jesus to work on wood as a carpenter and then to die on wood as a redeemer. We can never forget the reality that Jesus comes to restore and to deliver our work from sin's distortion. We can never forget how Jesus delivers work from our idolatry, from our selfishness and from fruitlessness. How does he do that? Well, let's just, let's go through it. Firstly, how does he, how does he deliver it from idolatry? Or, or what do we see with Jesus? We see that he dies on the cross for our sins of idolatry. We also see that by faith in Jesus Christ, we may have our divided relationship with God restored. This is the beautiful news of the gospel. And it unleashes you from idolatry. How? Because when you come to understand that in Jesus Christ, your past is forgiven and your future is secured. When you come to understand that in Jesus Christ, you are more loved, more significant, more valued, more beautiful than you could dare to imagine or dream, you'll stop worshipping dumb idols that provide you temporary joy compared to Jesus, your saviour, who gives you everlasting joy. Firstly, Jesus delivers us from idolatry. Secondly, he delivers work from being about us. By God's spirit and Jesus' example, we can love like Jesus loves. We can serve like Jesus serves. And by the good news of the gospel, we can be forgiven when we fall short of that. Jesus makes it so work is not just about us, as we can follow his model of work. But then thirdly, Jesus delivers our work from being to be fruitful again. In creation, work was fruitful, but then sin distorted it to make it fruitless. Not always, but a lot of the time. But then Jesus comes and then once again, he makes work fruitful. So that when work is a burden, when work seems to be hard, you don't understand what is the point, how, how am I supposed to grow through this? Well, that's the point. You see, there is fruit that comes from your work and it's the fruit of the Spirit as God makes you more godly as He shapes you to be like Jesus through your work. He redeems work and makes it so it has a purpose even in the burden of work. In the New Testament, we learn about Jesus' deliverance of work and this deliverance of work has massive implications. But one implication it has is this. The first implication that I wanted you to understand is that your work has dignity. Second one is it can be divisive. The third one is this. Your work matters. 
Your work matters. There's an unfortunate habit that Christians and church make throughout history, and that is to separate secular work from sacred work, to try and separate the work that is done by pastors and missionaries and those that are done by plumbers and carpenters, and to say that this work is more meaningful and of greater importance. Before the Reformation in the 16th century, that was basically the teaching of the day, that the Pope, that the priests, the cardinals, the nuns were more important than the average Joes that their work was more important, but they were also more important. Martin Luther entered the frame, may have heard of him. He started the Reformation and he tried his best through the doctrine of justification and the priesthood of all believers. Don't understand, that's okay. But he tried to level the playing field and help correct that misunderstanding of Scripture. But unfortunately, some Christians still today, and I can understand why I still think this way. Maybe in this room you can feel like, is my work really that meaningful? Does it really have that much purpose? Maybe I should, does it have that much purpose compared to a pastor or a missionary? If you feel that way, I just want to encourage you and I just want to explain something to you, and that is this, is that in the scriptures, all believers of Jesus are called to do creation work as well as redemption work. We are called to rule the earth, but we're also called to redeem the earth. We're called to work like Jesus as a carpenter, but also called to talk about Jesus in our work. As a pastor, let me tell you, I can't go home and just say to Emma, sorry, babe, I'm not doing the dishes. That's creation work. I'm all about redemption work and telling the gospel. Okay? And it's the same for you guys in work. You can't go, my job is only to be a carpenter, only to be an engineer. Your job is also to be a light and to talk about Jesus when he gives you opportunities to do so. For all of us, our roles is to do creation work as well as redemption work. In the beginning, it was just to do creation work. Sin enters the frame and our job description doesn't get changed or substituted, but it just gets broadened to doing creation and redemption work. For some of us in this room, that might mean that you'll quit your job to be able to do creation and redemption work. You'll leave your nets behind like the disciples did and maybe you'll go to foreign places and share the gospel there. But for a lot of you, it will look like you're staying where you are, where God has sovereignly placed you, to be a light in a familiar place, to work like Jesus and to talk about him. Your work matters. Your work matters. What is the purpose of work? Well, like I said, in the beginning, it was to bring glory to God and to serve others and to provide for us. Sin distorts it, so Jesus comes, he delivers it. So that work is about working like Jesus by bringing glory to God, talking about Jesus in redemption work, and also becoming more like him as you work. But friends, as we work, may we never forget the gospel that saves us. The gospel, which can probably be summarized in many ways, but I want to summarize it tonight with three trees. In Genesis, we learn about the first tree called the tree of life. In Revelation 22, we learn about another tree also called the tree of life. In between these two trees, there's another tree in the Bible. And it's also a tree of life. But the irony is, it's a tree that brings life through death. It's a tree of the cross, which Jesus died from, but then resurrected after. Today, what we saw is that Adam and Eve, they did the unthinkable by choosing death over life. You and I have the same challenge will we choose death or life 
Will we choose Jesus and believing in him, following him, working with him, working for him? Or will we decide to run away from him and rebel against him in our work?